I read a fascinating article this week that said that cows have four sections of their stomach. I find that amazing. Every part having its unique role in the digestive process. And that is radically different than how our system works. Uh, It's much slower than the process we have, but it is incredibly efficient, apparently, I've learned. Absorbing the maximum amount of nutrients from every last morsel of food that they've consumed. And needless to say, this paragraph, we have been digesting like a cow. Rather slowly, but we're getting everything wonderful out of it. And it truly deserves the kind of attention that we've been giving it the last couple of weeks. What is this, the third sermon we've done on one paragraph? And rightfully so, because there's so much to this, and there's been so much confusion on this topic, on all of the topics raised in this paragraph. And so we're going to continue to glean all that we can this week, finally getting a chance to say what this text says rather than focusing on just what it doesn't say, which is what we did last week. So two times ago, as we've been going through Matthew, we read how Peter made the good confession, how Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that confession is the foundation for everything that has followed. Everything ties back to that confession in this paragraph. Because on that confession, as we described last week, Jesus said, I will build my church, which is where we're going to focus in today. You know, the church in in terms of biblical history at this point in Matthew chapter 16, this is something new. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament That God was working through Israel in the Old Testament, and now there's something new that Jesus is building here beginning in Matthew 16, a new institution built on this confession that Christ is the cornerstone. Here's what I mean by that. I mean the church is distinct from Israel. Israel is an ethnic people to which God has given specific promises to, including the land, especially their land, actually. And the church is a spiritual people made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation who are built up together, who are united in this confession, which Peter was the first to proclaim here. The church, in one sense, came from Israel since the Messiah came from Israel. We do serve and worship a Jewish Messiah but it is still distinct from, uh, Israel is distinct from the church and who we are today. Uh, I say this because there are many well-meaning Christians that use verses that apply to Israel, especially in the Old Testament, and claim them as promises for the church today. And that's not how it's supposed to be read. It doesn't work like that. You know, perhaps after giving an illustration, we'll start to make more sense of it. A popular one I've seen misquoted recently is 2 Chronicles 7.14 that says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. 
Now, it's understandable why the church would want to claim that promise as its own. That is a beautiful promise. If we would just repent of our sins and turn to him, we would be healed and our land would be healed and America will be restored to what it's supposed to be. And I I love that, but the problem is you have to read verse 13 to understand verse 14. Here's what verse 13 says of that same chapter. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locust to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name, and it goes on for the rest of that verse, you start to see the problem, that this is a specific verse dealing with a specific problem, a specific judgment of God for when the people... Uh, do not humble themselves when they're proud and God punishes them through rain, through uh, withholding rain and locusts and pestilence. That's the healing that is being referred to on the land, not the people. There's nothing wrong with the farmlands in America today, but we certainly desire a spiritual healing. So, while I think we all are all seeking the same thing, this isn't the verse that I would point you to towards that desire. Now, granted, there's plenty of, I think there's a very strong biblical principle for God honoring nations who do humble themselves, who do repent and seek the Lord's face after shutting the door on him as one could make a strong argument we're very actively doing in our country today. I, I wouldn't point you to that verse, though. I'd point you to the Ninevites regarding what happened under Jonah and the great humbling that took place there and the great turning back to God. That's what I would say. But this verse does say a lot about God's grace, God's forgiveness, and God's willingness to forgive his people and to relent of his judgment and return to the blessing. And I think that, that, that that's the side of it that we can apply to us today. Not what it says about us, not what it says about Israel, but what it says about God and who he is. Hope that makes sense. You know, we have to be very careful dividing these lines as we go about it. Uh, another very popularly misquoted verse is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. This is one that you guys have seen before. It's on, if you've had a verse of the day thing, it is on it like every other day. If you've ha- owned anything with Christian media, it's on there. If you own a Bible cover, it's on it. And it, when you read it, you see why it became so popular. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, who doesn't want to claim that promise for yourself? The problem is, verse 10 before it says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. It's referring to the Babylonian captivity when Israel was given a 70-year time out, essentially. Sent away to the Babylon to, to the land of Babylon after Jerusalem was burned literally to the ground, and they were get, the land was forced to have a rest, a Sabbath rest after the Israelites had ignored it for hundreds of years. So, 
This verse doesn't apply to that. What this verse is saying is that God's speaking to Israel saying, I am not done with you yet. Saying to the land of Israel, this is not the end for you guys. You are not going to be obliterated. I have a future for you. I have a hope. I will not forsake all of these other promises that I've given you throughout Scripture. You can be assured that you will be restored someday. That's what that verse means for us to say. Since I haven't gone through a Babylonian captivity, I can't claim that promise. But I can rejoice that when I read that verse, as a Gentile living in New Jersey, I can be reminded and take comfort that God is faithful. He will keep his promises. Just not that one to me, if that makes sense to you guys. So we've been talking about this distinction between the Israel and the church. We have to ask the question, well, what is the church? And, you know, I covered this at length at the start of the year through a series of messages, and I'm not going to rehash that just for the sake of going through the scriptures. But to, fo- to laser in on the point, it said the church is the community of God's redeemed people. The church is the community of God's redeemed people people. It is consisting of all who have truly trusted Christ alone for their salvation. That's what the church is. You know, it's interesting, you know, I've, uh, I've been asked, you know, by a couple of people looking to join the church, well, what is your criteria for membership? Well, that's what it is. You know, to, to believe, be part of God's redeemed people, and be part of the community. And so that's what we do. You know, the the whole goal of membership classes or the confirmation class, all of that is just to, to, it, it doesn't make you a member. All we do is recognize whether or not you already are a member, whether or not you do believe, whether or not you are part of the assembly here. That's the criteria. Biblically, that's all that there is. Throughout Scripture, the, 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 this assembly, this uh, community of believers is called the body of Christ, emphasizing the many different parts of it, all working together as God designed it. It's called the bride of Christ, emphasizing his love and his care for the church. It's even called the family of God emphasizing the beautiful relationship we have as brothers and sisters in the Lord. It exists to worship God, to learn God's word, for people to have fellowship together in this community, to pray and to be a launch pad for evangelism and missions that would take place uh, according to the Great Commission of Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 2 for the rest. And to accomplish this task, God has given his church different gifts according to his purpose. In um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a passage many of us are very familiar with, and also gave different offices to the church, according to our first reading in Ephesians 4, so that we would, to help us as we grow in our walk with Christ and to be built up with him, having opportunities to use our gifts and having people to watch over our souls through teachers and pastors and evangelists and so forth. And interestingly enough, the very word church means called out assembly. The called out assembly. It's the assembly of believers. That is the church. 
It's not the brick-and-mortar building. It's certainly not our 501c3 tax-exempt organization, God forbid. But it is the assembly of believers, wherever they're located. It, whether that be here in this brick-and-mortar building, whether we're on the front lawn of the church, whether we're in the waterfront park for an event, or one of your living rooms. Wherever we happen to be assembled, there the church is. The early reformers were very, very careful to keep this distinction in a way that the church today really doesn't do. You know, they would go out of their way to make sure that this building was referred to as the meeting house. They would never refer to this building as a church. They would say this is the meeting house for the church. Having a dedicated building where the church would assemble, that was a good thing. They were for that, but they never confused the two. Which, by the way, is the reason why you can't say, I do church at home. Because you can't be assembled at home. It's, it's a contradiction of terms. It's like saying you're a married bachelor. It's a, it's a statement that doesn't make sense on its face. Now, now look, and I say this every time I bring this up, and, and rightfully so, that there are some people who faithfully join us online every single week because they can't be here in person. And they are very much with us in spirit. We know who they are, and we understand why they can't be here. That is in a completely different category than where I'm going with this. There is grace for that, and every single one of us, including myself, misses a week occasionally. And of course, I tune in afterwards to see what the guest speaker said as well. So we all can't be here every week, but for those of us who are able to, we are warned in Hebrews 10 not to forsake the assembly of believers. Because if there's one thing, just to get practical for a second, that COVID taught us, it's that we cannot, we, we, it is essential for us to be together. It is essential for the church to assemble, to encourage one another, to use our gifts, to serve with one another. I mean, goodness, when you're not here, we're missing something. It feels different when somebody who you know and you see week to week isn't here. I mean, gosh, when you think about COVID especially, when we just did those short services and those hymns and a couple of hymns and a very short sermonette, did that feel like a regular church service to you guys? Felt like something big was missing, wasn't it? It was the assembly. It was the fellowship. It was us all working together. Because the church isn't just about the pastor using his gift. Or Sharon using her gift. It's us all being together using our part in the assembly, while those are parts that we should consider when looking at a church, a better question that we need to ask is, how are you and how you can use your gift as part of the assembly? People often ask what the, what the church can do for me. How can this church meet my needs? I think we would all be better off if we approached our local church wherever we are and, and asked, what gifts has God given me that I can use here? How can I use my gifts at this assembly and use the gifts God has given me for? So I think that's a lot more biblical. 
But getting back to our text, Jesus said on this rock, this confession, I will build my church. Who did he say was going to build it? Who did he say was going to build it? Jesus, I will build my church. And this is fantastic news because that means I don't have to. Do you have any idea of how freeing that is? I mean, people bring in these hotshot pastors with all this media savvy abilities and these celebrities to build their church. But that's something that Jesus says he's going to do. And if there's one thing ministry, at being trained for ministry, the faithful men who poured into me have taught me, it's you never take a responsibility upon yourself that's meant to be done by Jesus alone. If you're looking to your pastor to be your savior, you are doomed. Especially this one. Eesh. Paul even laughs at this idea at 1 Corinthians 3, 6, where he says, I planted a particular church, and Apollos watered covering that analogy, but God gave the growth. It wasn't Paul or Apollos that made that church grow. It was God who gave the increase. Acts chapter 2, it says, the Lord added daily to those who were being saved. It doesn't say, oh, the, you know, through Peter's great preaching was there added daily those who were being part of the church. No, it was the Lord. He was the only one who took credit for what happened. And frankly, the way Jesus builds his church is often very different than the way man wants to build something. As men, we love to build things fast. We love to build things cheap and build things that are impressive, that people are, oh, look at this beautiful thing you've created. We're all about instant gratifications too and large numbers. So the goal of these people who come to build the church, the goal is packed out pews. But that can't possibly be the case. That can't be what Jesus wants as the main goal for his church. I mean, you turn on Christian television and you'll 95% of them have packed out churches they are so unhealthy, most of them, for many, many reasons. 95% of them are not in good shape. And goodness, we lost this week one of the very few good ones with Charles Stanley going home to be with the Lord. I don't care if you agree with everything that he ever said. That man was one of the few faithful preachers on Christian television. God bless that man. Sorry for those of you who I'm breaking the news to. But Jesus himself didn't, didn't appeal to the multitudes. Yes, there were multitudes, but he didn't appeal to them. He sought after those who were with him for the right reasons, and he poured into them, drawing them deeper, those who came out. He focused on discipleship and focused on hard teachings for the sake of their betterment. And if people fell, if the masses and multitudes fell away because it was too hard for them, that was what it was. Jesus didn't engage in false marketing to keep people in the pews, if you will. So no, a growing church doesn't always mean a bigger church. Sometimes it means a deeper church. 
One of my favorite examples of this, and some of you guys have heard me say this before, but it bears repeating, is the Chinese bamboo tree. It's a wonderful example. You, you plant this thing in the ground, for five years there is no visible growth. Looks like nothing's happening. And then after those five years, it grows 80 to 90 feet in only six weeks. Just shoots right up. So clearly, during that time, that tree wasn't doing nothing in those five years. It was growing all right, but it was growing deeper. It was growing these root systems, getting stronger, so that when it came time for it to grow taller, it had the infrastructure it needed to grow taller and not fall over because the roots and the foundation was strong. And guys, I think that is such a perfect illustration of what the church is designed to be. I think that is God's plan, that churches need to go deeper and establish their roots and grow stronger and more firmly rooted and grounded in the word of God so that when it comes time for the church to grow taller or larger or more pew-packed, however you want to use this analogy, the structure is there that can support it. I am convinced that is how Jesus wants his church. So the question is, are we growing deeper with Jesus? Are we growing and maturing in the faith? Are we growing closer to God? Are we becoming more sanctified as the longer that we know him? Are we being challenged? Are we being discipled? Are we doing and trying to build God's church his way? Because, by the way, I believe that when a church abandons this centrality of God's word and and the foundation he wants us to have, and we start forsaking all these other things that a church is supposed to be, a church is naturally going to default into something else, something that man is able to build. Because, look, men can build wonderful things and wonderful organizations, nonprofits, healthcare facilities, education facilities, certainly entertainment venues, sporting arenas. Men can build these things and build them well. But man cannot build a church. That job belongs to Jesus. So when the, my point is this. When the gospel is abandoned, churches will naturally default to being political or become social clubs or god forbid in some of these other churches entertainment venues and that's all that they are i heard one sad story some time ago about a pastor who was so focused on building the business side of his church that to make time to focus on the business to do the behind the scenes stuff that he really enjoyed doing he he had to abandon his pulp, parts of his pulpit ministry. But instead of handing it off to somebody else, he started plagiarizing his sermons. That way he would have more time to focus on the business stuff. And praise God, the guy got caught. Because he started plagiarizing a very popular preacher. And somebody in his, uh, in his congregation was like, I've heard this before. Line for line. And look, I'll borrow an illustration from time to time, but from the ground up, it's got to be your own. I'm a firm believer of that. And so the guy basically, in the desiring to 
become a businessman, he abandoned his post as a pastor, and it cost him. And it happens in other ways too. You know, goodness, I can do a lot more things around the church if I cheated like that. I could do a lot more business around here if I started, you know, letting computers automatically generate my sermons. But we got to do things God's way if we expect God's blessing upon the church. Other churches do the same thing with a slightly different flavor. Many churches veer off in the direction of making their message about politics, where the minister in that case basically ceases to become a pastor and has become a political activist. And they'd be more honest if they changed their title on their church website. And look, there's a, there's a place for that in the world, but when that becomes the central message of the church, it's lost its way. Now look, biblical beliefs have political implications, but it's, it ought never be confused what the main point of a church is. Like, we have our core message, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and as we study the scriptures, there are, there are offshoots of that that will have political implications, and so be it to that. But when you make the, centri- the central point political, and you have spiritual points thrown in there, you've put the cart before the horse. It doesn't work like that. And I've been pretty clear about this already, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But this is exactly what the PCUSA denomination has done, putting that same cart before the horse. And God bless your elders at this church. They have formally called upon the denominational leadership to repent of this very sin. And we pray that it is heard and responded to appropriately and that they would return to the centrality of the gospel and letting this Political stuff just fall by the wayside. Go back to the peripheral areas where it belongs. But again, I've said more than enough on that topic already. So as we draw near to a close this morning, I pray that you guys are hearing what I'm saying, that we walk away with a higher view of what the church is and is not. That this called out assembly, Jesus will continue to build. Not always this local church, but God's church as a whole. He will continue to build. Not always in size, but we, often, we pray that it will grow in depth and in strength, especially here. That it is built up every time a sinner repents and the angels rejoice in heaven. It grows deeper every time the church does what it's called to do in Acts chapter 2. And so with all that being said, there's one final question that's, that's staring us in the face. Are you part of Christ's church? Are you part of his assembly of believers here? You know, many people attend on Sundays like it's an event to be observed or to be entertained by. And there's a time and a place to do that, especially for new members. But I pray that you're not just in the building with us but with us in spirit, joined in, a, in the same heart. <laughs> because, you know, let me tell you, as I'm looking around this room today, I am seeing my brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is my family. 
the, the relationships that we have and the wonderful things that we get to experience together as God's church, it is a wonderful thing. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And, you know, it's funny, we have that phrase, you know, that blood is thicker than water. How much more true is it that when it's the blood of Jesus Christ, his blood and righteousness that binds us together, we have something together that we don't share with every other person we know and love. It's, a, it's a, such a privilege to be part of the family of God assembled here at this church. And then lastly and quickly, do you know your part at this church? You know, God has given us, each, each of us, gifts to use, not for our own enjoyment, but for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I don't want to guilt some of you guys into doing more. I know pastors do that all the time. I know I can even be prone to do that. I get that. So that's not the message I want us to walk away with. But what I'm asking as your pastor are, is, are you using the gift that God has given you to bless this body, to bless this assembly? Or are we missing out? Is this church not as strong as it could be because you have something to share that is not being used? And I pray that you get that opportunity. And I pray that we're blessed by it as well. I pray that between the, the Sunday school, the VBS coming up, the food pantry, our upcoming outreaches, and the many other things this church is involved in, that you will find where God has called you to use your gifts for the betterment of the body and for the glory of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.